and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines and speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. On this week's episode, we delve into the complex web of Middle Eastern and UK relations as we sit down with the Right Honourable Alastair Burt, a former UK Member of Parliament and two-time Middle East Minister of State. We ask him whether he's concerned that the UK's repeated political scandals in recent years have harmed its reputation in the Arab world. His advice to Downing Street on the role it should play in solving the Israeli-Palestinian crisis and whether the British government could do more to help its people currently stranded in Sudan. Mr. Bird, thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, you served as Minister of State for the Middle East twice in your career and still retained close ties with many officials and leaders there. Now, over the past few years, the UK has suffered several political crises, but the one constant, perhaps ever since the 2003 Iraq war, has been a series of repeated mistakes with the Arab world. Frankly speaking, why does it seem the UK can never get its Middle East policy right? I think there's a lot of presumptions behind that, uh, Katie. I mean, first of all, the Middle East remains of, of great interest and importance to the United Kingdom. Uh, it's a very big trading partner, our seventh largest export market. Of course, it's uh, an important area for security concerns and also mutual trade in relation to that. Uh, there's an awful lot of UK citizens live in the region, well over 100,000 living in Dubai itself. So there's lots of reasons for the United Kingdom to remain very closely involved. But of course, policy errors have been made um, and uh, we're not alone in, in, in that, uh, either in the region or countries outside the region. Um, but I think the essential, the essential thing is that the long historical ties and the relationship between us means there will always be an interest and an involvement. And if we've made mistakes in the past, we're very anxious to make sure they're put right in the future. Do you think that Brexit and the recent political scandals at number 10 have had anything to do with it? As in, could it be that perhaps the Gulf countries or indeed the Arab world simply don't see the UK as important or powerful as it once was when it had a say in the European Union or when it had more stable political leadership? Let's take the two separately. Um, I argued against Brexit. It's one of the reasons I'm no longer in Parliament and in government. I do think the United Kingdom was stronger as being part of the 27, 28 nations that would therefore form the European Union. When you spoke uh, on behalf of your country, you were also speaking on behalf of the European Union. I think that mattered. Nonetheless, the decision the British people took did not leave the United Kingdom without a base of support uh, and without alliances which it was already attached to. We remain uh, a member of the United Nations Security Council. We're a leading member of NATO, which has been proved in relation to the Ukraine. Uh, we're at the uh, heart of the Commonwealth of Nations, and we've been able, post-Brexit, to look at new opportunities of alliances uh, beyond uh, Europe, and particularly towards Indi in, uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, area, and work on areas such as that. 
uh, our trade exports are still strong, our military exports are much sought after, and our diplomatic contacts are much sought after. We have a range of exceptionally good ambassadors throughout the area, uh, good speakers uh, of the language, well connected, and I still think the United Kingdom carries a great deal of clout in the region. I want to uh, change direction and talk about another big news item. That is Israel. Now, before I ask you about the ongoing situation there, I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned during a talk you gave at Muswell Hill Synagogue last year. Now, you said British politicians are finding it more difficult to criticise the actions of the Israeli government without their support for the Jewish state being called into question. Now, obviously, Israel, as per the United Nations, continues to illegally occupy Palestinian lands. And the ultra-right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu that we see today, they have said and done some atrocious things towards Palestinians. Why is that so difficult to condemn? It's a good question. There's a number of reasons. Um, I think there has been a historical um, reticence on the part of many in the West to criticise Israel. Um, firstly, there was a recognition that for many years Israel was a small state surrounded by those who had sworn enmity towards it uh, post-1948. That has changed over time. Um, but I think there was always a recognition that Israel's position in the region was extremely difficult, formed by the United Nations, supported by many states, but under great pressure. Secondly, of course, there's been the whole issue of anti-Semitism. There's no point in dodging this. Anti-Semitism is evil and wrong. And the, the fear, of course, is that those who criticise the state of Israel are somehow using it as a covert way of expressing what is really their anti-Semitism, for which we saw in the 20th century an appalling uh, uh, an appalling assault, the Holocaust, in relation to the Jewish population of, of, of Europe. And people have been wary uh, about being involved in criticism of Israel in case there was a risk of, of being involved in the issue of anti-Semitism. But over time, Israel has changed as a state. I've been visiting Israel for over 40 years as a student and then as a politician. Um, but Israel's recent actions have brought it into uh, areas of concern, not only for people in the West and around the world, but of course of the Jewish population in the United States and the United Kingdom, who've been very vocal about the activities of the present Israeli government. I think there's been a concern about, uh, could you be a friend of Israel, but not a friend of the government of the state of Israel? I'm absolutely clear that that is absolutely the right way to do, to go about it. We can be a friend of Israel, and of course there are states in the region who would profess themselves as friends of uh, Israel. Uh, but they are extremely concerned about the activities of the state of Israel. I think what's happened recently has been the taboo on criticising Israel is breaking down. That enables a sensible analysis of its policy on occupation, on settlements, uh, on the activities of at least two of the members of, of its government who have extreme views, one of whom has a conviction for incitement to racism. And this enables people to say, don't, don't tell me what I'm saying is anti-Semitic. I want to be able to criticise the state of Israel in the same way I would criticise anyone. So I think the reasons for bringing Israel into the spotlight have changed. Uh, Israel should not condemn these as attacks upon Israel. They're not. Uh, they are legitimate criticisms of Israeli government, nothing connected to, to anti-Semitism. Um, and of course, within the region, a region that I think wants to see Israel as a greater part of it, 
there are real challenges for the states there. Those states that are working more closely with Israel, those who are part of the Abraham Accords, uh, and those who, it is rumoured, want a closer relationship with Israel, even though they're not part of the Abraham Accords. They will have to work out their relationship, bearing in mind the activities of the state of Israel towards Palestinians and towards the occupied territories. I think it's going to absorb us for quite some time. But the opportunity of making something of this, finding an answer for the long-standing injustices against the Palestinians, but in a way which does not involve uh, a, a, a resumption of terror against the people of Israel, which is equally uh, wrong. Uh, I think the opportunity is there if we can all work together to try and find an answer. I want to ask you a little bit more about the two-state solution we were just talking about yes. there because uh, Arab News recently commissioned a, a special study with YouGov uh, to mark the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. There you go. Now, uh, it was quite interesting, uh, in fact, because the majority of the Palestinians say they still support a two-state solution. Given what we know, given what we're talking about today, do you still see that as a viable solution? I do, but then it's not really up to me. Uh, I am I'm increasingly hearing from so many in the Palestinian community, firstly, that they've lost faith in the opportunity of a two-state solution. They've lost a degree of faith in their leadership. I think that is uh, commonly known uh, throughout the region. But what I haven't heard is a definitive answer of one state which would meet the aspirations of both the Israeli, uh, the Jewish Israelis who uh, believe in the foundation of a, uh, of a Jewish state and those who would share the land in some way and come from a Palestinian position. I've not heard a structure that would seem to suit both. But I do know a lot of people are working on this. In the end, it won't be for politicians to dictate what is happening. And interestingly, with the involvement of people from uh, outside the regular sources, we have got used, I grew up and my politics grew up in a, in a situation where the work being done to bring uh, Israel and Palestine together was being done through the United States or through Europeans. Uh, now, increasingly, it, it involves all those in the region uh, looking at the Arab Peace Initiative and the opportunity to pursue that. And of course, there may be brokers from outside, including China. But what structure there can be, I don't think I know at this stage if it's not to be a two state. And that's getting increasingly difficult because of what is left of the possibility of a Palestinian state. If it's to be a one state, what does it look like and how will it be governed? And how will people make sure that it doesn't fall foul of all sorts of uh, other problems? So I, I think uh, as someone who wants to see a resolution of this for the safety and security of the state of Israel and also for justice and security for Palestinians, it won't be my decision at the end of the day. I would encourage any work that is being done on this. I think both Europe and the United States and, and all friends in the region should be open to how they can best help. And I do see opportunity that has been taken with the Abraham Accords and the possibilities there to find a way to say, if Israel wants to be fully at the, at the heart of the Middle East region, it cannot be done at the expense of the Palestinians. Uh, and I think those states that are working to normalize relations with Israel probably realize that as well. And if the opportunity of a different Middle East, if the opportunity of a Middle East of security and trade and prosperity without the conflict between the Palestinians and, and Israel being at the heart of it, the opportunity for that must be enormous 
and forget the politics, the everyday lives of those who have had their lives changed by this conflict on all sides would be so different. I would, uh, I, I would encourage any work that is being done in relation to this. Well, the same Arab News YouGov study we were just talking about, they surveyed more than 950 people. It was interesting. They found that the US was the least trusted partner to try and mediate between the two sides. But perhaps somewhat surprisingly, uh, a Chinese offer to mediate between the Israelis and the Palestinians, that received an 80% support rate from the Palestinians. Does that surprise you at all? And what do you think it means? I think it did surprise me a little, but but then on reflection, I'm rather less surprised. I, I, I think a, a fundamental I, I'd like to convey is that I think the region is changing. And I think the region's influences are changing. I think for some of the reasons we spoke about right at the top of the interview, uh, where the West has declined in influence because of mistakes it has made uh, and distrust that has spread. And also because the world looks different now. It, it, it's moving in an eastward direction, but the Middle East is more more assertive. Um, I've worked with uh, with countries in, in the Gulf and in the Middle East for many years, as you've said. I've seen the diplomatic uh, power that's capable of being influenced by these states and their determination to do more. Look at the space program in the UAE, for example. Uh, 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 Project Hope, Mission Hope, and uh, this is a state that has achieved a great deal, um, that it wants to be responsible for its own destiny, that it wants to create negotiations with, say, Iran, as does uh, Saudi Arabia, and that states want to be more uh, determining of those that they will partner with and those that they will use, doesn't strike me as strange at all. And China is looking for new opportunities. Now, I have reservations about elements of, of uh, Chinese government, and there's no reason to go into that but it'd be obviously well known and what i don't think the middle east should do is swap partners that it's had in the past for uh, for new ones for the same relationship the middle east is independent and should be and it should choose its partners wisely but those who want to come in and say maybe there is something that new partners can do to resolve an issue bearing in mind what i said about the importance to me of seeing israel and palestine resolve its difficulties and get over this conflict and everything that it means. If a new partner is there, they should be listened to, but they should be listened to very clear-eyed. Uh, and what is the interest of a mediator and what ultimately will be the determination of the mediator? Um, and there are questions to be asked about anyone who wants to get involved, what their motives might be. So I wasn't surprised when I thought about it, uh, about that figure. It indicates how distrusted others have become, but people need to be wary of those who will come in new and judge them on what they do, not just on what they say. And certainly we've seen China's role in the Middle East certainly evolve in recent years. They've been very successful recently in brokering the deal between Saudi and Iran. That was announced back on March 10. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this deal. Were you surprised by that deal? What are your thoughts on it? And how likely do you think the Iranians are to stick to it in your experience? Well, first of all, I don't think we should ignore the part that Iraq played in the work between Saudi and Iran and the Baghdad process. Iraq worked extremely hard to, to try and bring uh, those parties together over a lengthy period of time, quietly, covertly, and then sort of more obviously. Um, and then China was able to pick up uh, uh, at the end and indeed sort of broker the final stages of the deal. That Saudi and Iran are talking doesn't uh, never surprised me. 
and we all you know we all operate in a diplomatic world where what is visible on the surface doesn't always um uh, reflect what's going on underneath the region does not need another conflict another conflict would be a disaster iran's conduct in recent decades its sponsorship of terror uh, its use of proxy forces to to create this uh, it's uh, it has its explanation for this but the risk that it's been running has been huge and its nuclear program again has been the subject of much controversy a, a, a deal which was designed to contain it was in my view wrongly walked away from by the united states but the the atmosphere of potential conflict and the area being unsettled no wonder that those who would be most closely involved should a conflict begin want to have their own negotiations to descale the conflict and as i mentioned earlier this is a changing region in a changing world and that those who have uh, been close to iran in the past i mean uh, the uae and iran look out upon each other a conflict which in, would involve one or other of those would be disastrous so that people are talking to each other looking at what they can descale looking at the areas of potential comp compromise it didn't strike me as strange at all getting a deal and getting people to stick to a deal well that's slightly more complex um Iran has not always uh, been in a position to deliver on everything it might have signed up to, has its reasons for explaining why not. Um, but uh, we know in the region that, uh, for instance, if, uh, if there was a more agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, it opens up possibilities uh, for greater peace moves in Yemen, uh, for example. So I wasn't surprised. It, it does have possibilities. It will be essential to build up trust which has been so lacking in the region over so over so long. But as inevitably, the benefits of peace and stability economically and for domestic stability are so much greater than the, um, the influence of conflict and the damage that conflict can do. It must be worth pursuing all these avenues and all these conversations. And the West, to a certain extent, has got to watch uh, rather than be involved uh, because these are discussions being held without them, and there's no reason why that should be. It shouldn't be the case. Uh, and they will have a close interest in the outcome because the stability of the region still matters very much to states like the United Kingdom that want to encourage any talks or conversation that would lead in that direction. Okay, interesting. So you say the West needs to, uh, to, be, to adjust to becoming a watcher rather than being involved in discussions like this. Yeah. There have been many who have said this deal has been a real slap in the face to the West. Do you think London sees it that way? I don't think it does. I mean, I, 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 and I certainly don't agree with that as a description because that assumes that everything revolves around us and it doesn't. Uh, equally, you can't take the influence of the West out of the equation, and nor should you. It's still going to be very important for security. Look at the security relationships entered into by all these states. But if, if commentators believe that the world has to revolve around the United States and Europe and deals being made in relation to them, I think that's changing. And I don't think it's a slap in the face at all. What a diplomatic power like the United Kingdom could do with all its, its experience is work with those who are looking for new opportunities to resolve issues and use their experience of our contact with people over time, what we know uh, about what people are looking for, as an opportunity to navigate 
a way for the future. Uh, so I think London, London is wary of those who have been involved in conflict or provocations in the past. Uh, we know that states may say one thing, but do another. And states that have a track record uh, of causing conflict and being involved in conflict are, are unlikely to change unless it becomes absolutely clear that they have a greater advantage in not pursuing such conflict uh, and such uh, proxy activity. That's still to be proved in the case of some. But you would always, I, I think, uh, though I don't speak for the Foreign Office or anyone there, you would always look at these opportunities and say, is there a better chance of peace and stability emerging from this short, medium and long term? Is this a false set of premises? Are people weakening themselves by conversations? We don't know all the answers to this, but I think diplomacy is involved in partly explaining and trying to work through some of these difficulties. But as we haven't got it all right in the past, I don't think we're entitled to blame anybody for trying to find a new way through. Well, one immediate consequence of the deal has been the extended truce in Yemen. Now, the UK has recently named a new ambassador to Yemen, lawyer and diplomat Abdus Sharif. I know you know her well. What would you advise her to focus on? And does the UK have any leverage over the warring parties in Yemen and could perhaps help turn this into a lasting peace? The other way around. Uh, I used to depend on Abdus for, uh, for advice uh, and... Uh, very capable and an outstanding choice of ambassador there. And she arrives at a, at a good time. I've much admired the work that the UN envoy, uh, Hans Grunberg, has done in relation to this. But the conflict has been a deeply, deeply distressing one um, in which the victims have been the people of Yemen who have not had a great time in recent decades. Uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh robbed them. Uh, uh, on a regular basis uh, and false um, false security was given. Uh, the Yemeni people deserved far better. But of course, the United Kingdom has a, a long-term interest and a long-term history, and maybe that was part of the difficulties and the conflict that emerged afterwards. But I know from my visits there that, uh, again, our experience and diplomatic experience will be, will be looked for. But ultimately, the United Kingdom will not... You know, but not be the arbiters of this. It is those who wield power, realizing that there is a limit to that power and that their futures and the futures of those they purport to represent will be so much greater if they can find peace for them rather than never ending conflict. And it, it has to be a, a peace with compromise. The total domination of one group over another, whether it's Houthi or anyone else, is not a basis for long-term stability only produces the opportunity for more conflict going forward in the future. The structure of, of Yemen will have to be looked at, the position of the South and the um, you know, potential opportunities there for a different constitutional structure. I thought we were nearly there with the national dialogue some years ago before, uh, before that was ripped away from the people, of, um, uh, from the people of, of Yemen. So there are real opportunities. Uh, I'm quite sure the British ambassador will be talking to everyone, but promoting peace, promoting compromise. But, but it, it's got to be real compromise built on a genuine desire uh, for the best for the people of, uh, of Yemen to realise uh, their situation and improve it rather than the conflict, which has essentially been about men, money and power, which they've had to endure for too long. 
Okay, so you still see the UK playing a support role in that. I, I, I want so. to talk a little bit yeah. more widely in the region. Uh, we've seen the, the shocking war in Sudan that continues to rage on. Now, the British government has been criticised for its lack of decisive action, particularly with it choosing to uh, evacuate only its diplomat, uh, diplomats and essentially abandoning its citizens. Do you think London has turned its back on its everyday people? No. The situation there was the... Uh... Uh, the initial outbreak, the sudden outbreak of violence uh, caught a lot of people by surprise. It was concentrated in the diplomatic quarter. And the United Kingdom has a, a duty of care not only to its citizens, but also to its diplomats. And it had the opportunity to, 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 to get them out uh, and would have been in dereliction of duty if it had not done so. Um, I know then it worked extremely hard on the evacuation of others. I know some of those from the Foreign Office who went out into danger zones in order to, uh, to, to seek to uh, ensure that citizens could get away. I was involved with one particular doctor who was a Sudanese citizen, not uh, a UK citizen, but was given support by the United Kingdom because we realised those from Sudan who were working in the NHS deserved as much consideration as any UK national. It took a few days, but then we got that uh, got that arranged. And the United Kingdom, uh, I think, worked very hard to get people out in very difficult circumstances. But when conflict arises, you can't guarantee everyone's safety. But I do know that for, you know, for many, you know, for many days, we worked very hard. But I know it looked very difficult getting one group of people out, but there was an opportunity to do so. Had they been left, uh, and had they been killed, then the arguments would have been very much uh, very different. Um, and, and I know that the safety of all UK citizens is a pri the prime concern of the Foreign Office and the UK government uh, when things go wrong. Well, you say that, but the Foreign Office very clearly said they could only offer consular assistance to diplomats and their families. And we saw a tragic case in May. There was an 85-year-old British citizen in Sudan. He was shot and injured by snipers. Now, his disabled wife, who was left at home, she then died of starvation. This was despite repeated calls for assistance made to the nearby British embassy in Khartoum. Now, her family says that their home was located just across the road from the embassy. What is your reaction to this? And had you still been Minister of State for the Middle East today, what would you have advised the government? I heard about that case uh, after the event. Um, I know nothing of the circumstances because I wasn't in possession of any facts or anything like that. But the circumstances described by the family are deeply distressing. I don't know how close anyone was to be able to offer some support. Um, but uh, people would have assessed what risk there would have been to those who would have been seeking to, uh, to support a family in those circumstances. And I don't know. I don't know what the risks would have been to those seeking to evacuate in the circumstances and whether or not it would have been right for the British government to order people to put themselves at risk in order to do so. Um, what it demonstrates is that, that there are almost impossible decisions to make in these circumstances. And being a long way away, it's very hard to assess after the event whether the right decision was made or not in the heat of the moment. The problem was caused by the conflict arising, uh, the uh, indiscriminate firing by both uh, groups of soldiers involved in an internal power struggle, which is what it was, 
uh, and their killing of innocent civilians, wherever they might have been, whatever their nationality. That's the root cause of the problem. But of the circumstances involved, I didn't know all the details. If there had been a, a chance of rescuing UK citizens, uh, I would certainly have been in favour of doing that. But I have been involved in hostage situations where we've made such a decision and something has gone wrong and lives have been lost. So you can't always get it right. And I don't know what the outcome would have been if someone had tried to support or rescue that, uh, that poor family. But I can understand the reasons why that family was concerned and why they've said what they've said. And I have nothing to offer in terms of any information to the, to the contrary. Um, only the, the deepest sympathy for those caught up in those circumstances. But what it emphasizes is these, these conflicts are not necessary. These conflicts are not act of God. They're the will of individuals who decide that for their own political reasons, that they want to raise a conflict in order to secure more power or anything else. That's what's happening in Sudan. There's no ideological, there's no you know, compassionate campaign one way or the other. These are two groups looking for power, looking for money, prepared to kill people who get in their way. That's Sudan. Sure. And this is obviously a tragic situation. Our thoughts are with the families. Now, I want to turn your attention to another horrific situation we've seen in recent days. Swedish authorities have allowed the burning of the Quran at the start of the Eid al-Adha holiday. Now, this has caused a huge uproar across the Muslim and the Arab world. Now, the perpetrator has threatened to do this again within 10 days. We've now begun seeing attacks on Swedish missions and even calls to boycott brands like IKEA. What is your position on this matter? Do you think we're looking at freedom of expression or an unnecessary provocation of sacred symbols of the Muslim faith? Um, I, think, I think it's the latter. Uh, I think, uh, and I hope in the United Kingdom, had someone threatened that, it would have been seen, it, it, it would have come under the law somewhere. You know, potential breach of the peace, potential hate speech. It's got no place. It's nothing to do with freedom of expression or freedom of speech. The burning of sacred books uh, as a provocation is always wrong uh, and should always be prevented. Any, any sensible state would do so. I don't find that a contradiction in relation to freedom of speech uh, whatsoever. That someone wants to stand and explain their position in relation to another religion, I think is one thing. But to do things knowing uh, the response and the reaction that there would be, risk, uh, uh, unrest, you know, potentially lives being lost in reaction to it. No, that's got no place in a uh, uh, in any uh, civilized society. And I was deeply disappointed with the uh, uh, with with what happened there. I hope it would not happen in the United Kingdom. And I think it's important to note that this protest had been authorised by the police. Are you concerned we could see similar copycat acts take place in the UK? And what would be your advice to Number 10 Downing Street? No one can be complacent about these things. Uh, I think the rise, the rise that we have seen in, in many places of expressions uh, of, of hate I think social media plays its part, but all it does is amplify the feelings that people have. It's really very, very dangerous and very scary. I am not a far-right politician and have never been accused of being so. Um, you know, my very first work as a public servant was in a very mixed area of North London, um, you know, dealing with communities who were 
concern about injustices and rights that they had and navigating that was very important to me. Um, I, I think there are real risks and real tensions at the moment. Societies are plagued by them and it's all too easy for people to look for support and look for votes by being extreme and I think it's a real risk. I think the United Kingdom, I, I, I don't think number 10 needs my advice. I think, you know, firstly, of course, we have uh, we have a prime minister who comes from uh, a, a, a non-Indigenous British community. Uh, and we have ministers who represent the diversity of the United Kingdom in an extraordinary way. And that's changed almost in my lifetime. So we've seen that. Uh, I think that they understand these issues well. Uh, I, I think we are all on the lookout for dangerous extremists of all complexions. And I think number 10 will continue to do that, uh, look for those, but also seek to promote um, the sort of society in which people feel they're able to express their opinions, express their faith and use the opportunities that, that life gives them. I mean, two nights ago, I was on my way to the US embassy uh, U.S. Embassy residents, and I walked through Regent's Park. Uh, Regent's Park Mosque, of course, is one of the biggest in the United Kingdom. And Regent's Park was full of families celebrating Eid, uh, all the family out there, um, uh, lots of nice things to uh, to eat and to, uh, and to celebrate with, and a really happy occasion, a really mixed area. Um, that, I hope, is what we will see in the United Kingdom in terms of faith and community relationships. Uh, not the uh, threat and aggression of violence which we see elsewhere, but it could spark anywhere uh, as we see throughout Europe even this evening. And we have seen the mass condemnation of this act right across the Middle East and beyond. We've seen a number of ambassadors for Sweden recalled as well, and we hope we do see further action. Well, the Right Honourable Alistair Burt, thank you very much for joining us today on Frankly Speaking. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for the invitation.